Namo dasa bhagavato harahato sama sambuddhasa Namo dasa bhagavato harahato sama sambuddhasa Namo dasa bhagavato harahato sama sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the Blessed Noble, and fully self-enlightened one. So, uh, <clears throat> I want to start with a quote. Uh, somebody sent me an email. I thought I had a pretty good grasp on death, but I can't get a handle on it right now. It all just seems so futile and pointless, all the striving. Whether it's striving to earn enough money, striving to maintain ethics, striving to make good memories, What's the point when you just end up a photograph on someone's computer? Now, <clears throat> uh, you might be thinking to yourself, uh, today we're celebrating, uh, you know, the Buddha and his life. Why is this monk making me depressed? <laughs> <laughs> so, <clears throat> well, the reason that this caught me was not only because of its, its poignancy, uh, but also, it, there's a truthfulness about it, and uh, it sort of gives us a, a feeling for why the Buddha should leave his family. Right? So you've got a, a 29-year-old, this is the, uh, uh, the story told around the Buddha, and he leaves his, his wife, his family, so that would have been a, a long extended family in those days, very close, and uh, a newly born child, whom he calls Rahula, meaning chains. <laughs> and uh, we have these pictures of him sort of um, having a peak uh, and, then, and then obviously getting on his horse and, uh, and shooting off into the homeless life and um, I mean uh, men and women of course have left their families for various reasons war for instance a regular one but uh, he, was in, he was living in a place which was fairly, fairly much a peace. Uh, it was a small, uh, a small group of people, what would you call them, a tribe, a clan, a clan, uh, that was living in the south of uh, present-day Nepal, part of the greater kingdom of Kusala. Um, and his father was the head man, head poncho. So he would have had uh, a bit of influence, uh, a good future to look forward to. He was a kshatriya, which meant the warrior caste. So the caste system was fairly well established. Um, <clears throat> the Brahmins were still considered second class in, in his area. More to the, uh, more to the east, towards uh, present-day Bangladesh, it seems, they'd become uh, the first, uh, the, the, the top of the, of, the, of the caste system. They were the mouths of, the, of Brahma, and the, the Kshatriyas were the shoulders, and all the rest were the body and the legs. <laughs> that, that sort of image of of a caste is quite rigid. So what would, you know, his life would have been fairly pleasant. I mean, he wouldn't have been toiling as such, uh, messing about, I would have thought, most of the time, uh, practicing maybe uh, a couple of arts, a couple of the martial arts, um, generally talking about government and, and all the stuff that was going on, uh, but generally not a, not a stressful life. So uh, something in him, right, drove him. And even around that time, there's nothing, there's nothing to suggest that there was a close death or anything like that. 
Uh, although, remember, his mother had died at childbirth, so I'm sure that hangs somewhere in a person's memory. And uh, it's just, just the way this person puts it, you see. I thought I had a pretty good grasp on death. See, that's, I think most of us, I think, would, would say that. You know, well, you know, we've got a pretty good grasp on it. <laughs> and then somebody close dies, or, or it's our time, and then you suddenly realise that this grasp is not, is not such a, hasn't got such a good hold. <laughs> and uh, can't get a handle on it. See, it shocks you. Death shocks you. And, uh, and the reason is uh, that death is, well, so final. I mean, that's it, isn't it? And, uh, and, and everything, uh, everything, is, everything is lost, you see, at death. I remember there was um, uh, you know, this little joke about an elderly lady who died, who was very rich, and they asked the solicitor, um, you know, how, what, what, how much did she leave? What did she leave? And he said, everything. That's it. <laughs> everything. Like everything. So, you get me? so it's like when, when it touches upon you, then you get that sort of feeling of um, ungroundedness, that, in, that, that floatiness, that fear, that, that sort of anxiety. Uh, and that sense of uselessness, desperation, meaninglessness, right? And, and, we, and that, that takes us to the sort of existentialists of, um, of the, of the middle, middle of the last century, you know? People like Albert Camus, who said, you know, that life is, that consciousness was absurd. Well, that was the general uh, existential position, that consciousness itself is absurd. In other words, there was no reason for it. Uh, and it was completely absurd to suffer. So uh, Camus' idea was, well, enjoy life while you can, it, while you can, and then, and if you can't, well, hop it, you know, jump, <laughs> so get rid of it. What's the point? See? So <clears throat> here he has, he's got, he's got into this sort of uh, worthlessness, this meaningless of life. So that gives us some sort of idea, maybe, of the Buddha's mental state when he left, because in those times the horror wasn't this finishing, wasn't this annihilation. It was this continuous onward going that you'd be reborn again as a human being over and over again. There didn't seem to be an escape from it at all. And although there were teachers who said there were an escape, um, it was usually into some sort of higher realm. And it was all, it was all predicated on, on a particular person's experience. Mainly, from the Buddha's point of view, as he came to find out, based on your, your, um, your meditative experiences. So... You know, we have these absorption states, where, which are very refined states of mind. So if you were to die in that state, or you were an adept at getting into that state, then you would be reborn into this higher realm. And that actually still exists in the, in the cosmology of, uh, of, of Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism. So uh, we have to sort of capture him at that moment there of, of uh, in a sense, that a desperation which comes with, with meaninglessness. The whole point of having to come back again and again. So it's with that, of course, that he, he goes on his search. And he goes out with uh, the hope of actually discovering, uh, as he would put it later, the end of suffering. But actually, I think, in his own mind, it would have been the escape from rebirthing, from reincarnation, constant reincarnation. And... Um, when he uh, practices with the first two people, first two teachers, remember he gets these very uh, deep uh, mental states. And again, it's this idea that, oh, well, if you die in that state, you'll be reborn there, and that you'll be there forever in this beautiful state. But 
as he was a human being, he kept falling out of it. So there was a suggestion there, must have been a suggestion in him, that even though he was born in this heavenly place, the karma, the energy that would keep him there, would eventually run out and he'd fall back into <laughs> being a human being. And, uh, and that's basically also some of the teaching that we have from the Buddha, that, that uh, in this rebirthing process, depending upon the, the energy or the, um, or the, the amount of, of uh, uh, power that there is in that state, uh, you come forth from it when it's been, uh, when it's been exhausted and you would fall down or, or perhaps move upwards, who knows. So, and then, uh, so he found that to be, uh, you know, it wasn't, wasn't satisfactory. It wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't giving him some sort of way of putting an end to this constant rebirth. And then when he uh, practiced self-mortification, so that's a completely different uh, philosophy. That's the understanding that uh, the soul is trapped in the body, and the body itself is a manifestation of your bad karma. So the idea is to try and get rid of your body, um, especially the appetites of the body. So you deny yourself in order to reduce your appetites for the body, reduce your attachment to this life form, and by doing so, the soul would then untrap itself and rise to, uh, rise to heaven and stay there. So uh, this would have been a, an understanding, say, of the Jains. So there was a lot, you can see there's a lot going on. There were also materialists who, uh, like this person, thought, uh, believed that, you know, once you, uh, once you die, that was it. And there were people who didn't believe in, um, in good works or bad works that they would have an effect. They would say that, you know, if you went up one side of the Ganges full of compassion and love and joy and came down the other side with hatred, <laughs> greed and, and, and aversion, um, it didn't actually matter because it was all fate. It was all driven by, by circumstance. So you can see he's in, this, he's in an area of, uh, of tremendous fermentation. You know, a bit like today, really. I mean, today, if you look at the human race, all over the place. <laughs> so you get this, get this feeling that there was a lot of investigation going on about you know, the purpose of life. And so uh, he goes out, you see, with this sort of, I think, this this sort of uh, despairing state, uh, this uh, feeling about the meaninglessness of life. And, uh, and when, of course, he becomes fully liberated, uh, what, he, what he discerns is, uh, you know, how we create this suffering. And the whole, the whole accent then turns upon uh, who is actually... Who is actually causing or what is actually causing this rebirth? Now, whether we believe in rebirth as some sort of thing that happens after death, um, in a sense, doesn't really matter because all we have is this present moment and we must be rebirthing now. We must be in a process of recreating ourselves all the time. It's not a case of launching it into an, uh, an after-death process. Uh, that, that really remains... Uh, within your own personal belief, your own personal I know, perspective on life. Uh, if you've had a, a past life experience, then you probably have some proof within yourself that you go on. Uh, but if you haven't, then you take it on, on so we say, confidence for the while and, and hope for the best. <laughs> the, fact of, the fact that, we, uh, that there might be annihilation upon death uh, is in itself uh, not, a, not that tremendously horrible because 
once you're annihilated, well, at least there's no suffering. I mean, <laughs> that's it, it's gone. <laughs> but uh, the thing is that uh, it's really to catch the teaching as a moment-to-moment teaching. <coughs> that actually here and now uh, we are rebirthing. And to understand what's actually empowering that. Now, uh, when we talk about rebirth, if we just go through uh, what it is to be a human being from moment to moment, first of all, there's this body. So now we know this body is made up of something like 10 trillion cells, and it's got 100 trillion guest cells. And it's, it's const- these cells are constantly dying, reproducing themselves. So this body is not the body that we were born with. But it's, well, they tell you it's not the body you had seven years ago. So that's something really, you know, like when you look into a mirror, you know, you can say to your face, you weren't here seven years ago. <laughs> and you won't be here in seven years. So like, <coughs> it's, like, it's like reminding ourselves that, you know, uh, this, this feeling of being me, this sort of hardness, this constancy, this substantiality, that we have a feeling around this body, this me. Actually, you know, it doesn't have a basis, you know. And... When, when you look at the body like that, and then you ask yourself things like, well, what do I know about my body? Right? Now, you might know things theoretically. You might know, for instance, what your liver does. But do you know what it's doing now? See? Well, it better be doing a good job because <laughs> it's supposed to be doing a good job now. Right? <laughs> so if you ask yourself things like that, like, you know, uh, um, have I, uh, what would I have known about the brain uh, before modern science. All, all I know actually about the brain is that I'm up here somewhere, aren't I? I mean, most times I'm talking to you, I'm talking up here somewhere, about, you know, half, a, uh, half an inch or so behind this bone. You know, I, I just <laughs> I feel myself to be up here and I'm talking to you. And I haven't, I haven't a clue what, what's inside there at all. I have no direct experience of it. Huh? And if you look at me now, what do you know of your face? It's a big hole in it. <laughs> it's a big hole and you're looking through it. It's weird, isn't it? See? And then, and then uh, and I, I can see your face, but you can't see yours. Very strange situation, really. And you've got... <laughs> so you've got this. So if, you can, so if you grasp the fact that the body itself it, it has its own life form, it's, it's actually doing its own thing. And as you know, it can let us down terribly, you know. <coughs> Then if you look at your heart life, your emotional life, well, it's all over the place, isn't it? You get up feeling great, and then you're all over. I mean, it's, it's like you, there's no control over it. There's no absolute control. You can, you can push things away. You can, you, can, you can suppress stuff and put your mind on something which makes you happy, which lifts your spirits. Uh, but apart from that, you're still going to have to deal with this stuff because, well, we know it's all under there. So the heart itself is, is, is in this constant process of changing, of moving. And when in meditation, if we look closely, uh, what happens is that we, we, we put words to it. We say, oh, well, you know, I, I'm angry or I'm, I'm depressed or I'm happy, I'm joyful now. But actually when you go into it, you know, and, and you actually feel what's there, well, it, it's just a feeling. It's just a feeling, like a sensation, like an itch, which, is, which, you, which you want to scratch and then it disappears. See? There's nothing substantial about it at all, except that we give it a substantiality by saying it's me. So something happens with the body and the, and, and the heart whenever we turn it into something that I am. And it's impossible to escape. As soon as I say to myself, oh, I'm depressed, that's it, isn't it? I'm depressed, what am I going to do? <laughs> like, 
where am I going to go from there? You know, it's like Prozac, isn't it? I mean, it's like there's no, there's no escape from I am depressed. I am, at worst is I am happy. Because in the midst of I am happy, I am happy. And then the happiness goes. Then what am I? See? So this, this process of identifying with it, uh, identifying, identifying with emotional states, gives, gives it some sort of solidity, some sort of permanency, some sort of reality. But when we distance from it, and we look at it and we feel it, it's just a feeling. It's just a feeling. You know, mental feeling, maybe, but it's just a feeling. And even more fleeting are these thoughts. So when we see these thoughts come and go, uh, most times we're caught up in them. Uh, and for most part, most times, I mean, rightly so, we're having a conversation, we're on the telephone or whatever. But what we notice that when we come to, med to meditate, it's, it, it goes completely haywire. We've no control over it at all. See, and then you realise that, that, that maybe that's the way it is in daily life and I'm just fooling myself. <laughs> and you realise that no thought ever repeats itself. There's no, there's no repetition. Everything is absolutely creative. And, uh, uh, and therefore there's no, there's, no, there's no ability to hold on to something. You can't hold on either to this body, it's changing, to, this, to the heart states, although they're very similar. I mean, uh, one state of depression generally feels very much like the next. <laughs> but they're all, they're all the sort of same, they're all completely different uh, in the sense of what's actually happening in this moment. So the idea of trying to hold on to something, which is what we do, is becomes ridiculous. See? And that's, and that's one of the... Uh, that's one of the drives of our, of our meditation. When I say meditation, I'm not just talking about in, in a sitting posture, but even in ordinary daily life, just to be aware at the end of a day that the day's gone. That's it, it's finished, complete, you know. At the end of a meal, it's gone, finished, you know. You can't do anything about it, and you'll never come back. And that's it. <laughs> and feel the grief, see. And it's... And it's, it's just catching that impermanency of things at, the, at that, that absolute annihilation. So that's where we get the feeling of annihilation in the present moment, that every moment actually annihilates. Right? Phenomenally speaking, in other words, the consciousness that we have, uh, what we experience, even though the stimulus is given to us from the outside world, uh, everything that we have completely comes to an end and it annihilates. That's it. It's gone. So concentrating on that, you see, concentrating on the end of things brings us right face to face with this problem of death. And that's, what, uh, that's where I think, anyway, that the Buddha must have been when he, when he started on his, on his journey. And something, uh, as we know, something changed in him when all these things failed, right? Uh, there was this change of, of, of way of looking at things. We can only imagine that having uh, been to all these teachers, he was in a bit of a state of despair, really, because there was no answer. You know, nobody, was, nobody had shown him. He'd, he'd been through all the exercises. He knew all the arguments, because later on, after his liberation, he could, he could argue his point with all, the, with all the other teachers that were around, all the other philosophers and people like that. Uh, and yet he'd come to this point of desperation. So there was a, a flip, there was a turnaround. And the turnaround was basically, instead of chasing for happiness, instead of trying to find happiness, he now turns inward to see how he creates suffering. And uh, what his discovery, you might say, is um, that the world we're creating 
is the one that we are creating. So even in, the, in this room now, we have as many rooms as there are people. And when you grasp that, if you grasp that actually everything that you're experiencing now is being manufactured within, within here, within this body, you know, the heart process as well, and the feeling of the room, right? It's all, it's all being manufactured through the sense bases of the body and what the brain does with it and the mind does with it. And we have this, this consciousness which, doesn't, which is only limited by uh, phenomena. I'm only limited to what I can see by these walls. If these walls weren't here, then my consciousness would be able to contain uh, you know, uh, the whole area. If I was stuck in the middle of, of, uh, of, of the universe, I'd be able to contain the whole universe because my consciousness is as loud or as wide as what comes in through my sense bases. But it's all here, it's all me, it's all, it's all projection. None of, it, none, of, none of it actually really exists outside me as something I can experience. That's why, that's why I can't experience the world you experience. So there's some sort of uh, disconnection between us. And we can only contact each other through, through language, through a certain empathy, through a certain feel. But you can't, you know, you can't actually be in another person's world. You're, we're trapped in this consciousness. <laughs> we're trapped within our own world. Uh, which is uh, a terrifying idea if you think about it. <laughs> so, w when you begin to realise that, then the problem is, how do I then make this world that I'm manufacturing somewhere where I want to continue living, where I want to actually enjoy life, rather than being always in, uh, in a state of conflict. And that's when we come back into this process and realise this, this whole thing about desire, an attachment and aversion and having a, a relationship with what we're experiencing always to do with either wanting, grasping or pushing away or, or running away. Yeah? And then as you come behind that you find that there's some, somebody that wants to do this. So your original, the original problem lies deep, deep, deep within our psyche all around this idea of who am I? This sense of identity. And in our meditation, when we, when we distance something from us, as uh, those of you in the room this morning, and those who have been meditating anyway, uh, what you're doing, what we're doing is, we're, we're sort of finding a kernel of identity within ourselves, which is separating out from the psychophysical organism, with its sensations and feelings, emotions, moods, thoughts and images. That's a very strange place, think about it, because now you are the observer. You're, you're actually saying to yourself, in so many words, I am the observer of, right? The perceiver can't be the perceived. You can't, you know, you can't have the two. Uh, and I am, my feeling is that I am this observer, I am this feeler within what everything's going on in my mind. So, I'm an alien. Huh? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I shouldn't be here. There's something, I'm, I've lost my identity at a certain level with the body, heart and mind. It's a very, you know, when you think about it, it's a very strange place to be. Now, the thing is that when you get into that place, as it were, when you get into that place and, you're, you know, you're very quiet and into that place, just have a glance back into it and find out what's not there. And that's where you get the teaching of the Buddha about not me, not mine. Right? 
So this not me, not mine is not, is not a, a, a statement that there isn't a self, uh, inverted commas, that there isn't a soul, that there isn't something which is transcendent. See, there's no way in the scriptures he says there is no self. It's a teaching tool. What he's saying is everything that becomes an object to your awareness, um, you should be saying to, your, to yourself, the perceiver can't be the perceiver, it can't be me. So that's not me. And it's not mine. I can't possess something which is... Uh, uh, if, if, if I don't have a relationship with something, I can't possess it. And most of our possession, remember, is either some sort of emotional clinging or uh, a legal fiction. Yeah? I mean, if somebody steals your mobile, you might go around saying, somebody stole my mobile, it's not yours anymore. <laughs> it's hit. You know, like possession. It's just so you have to watch this sort of um, the way that the mind works in terms of identifying and possessing something. So now, uh, as we go down through the layers, so here we are, we, we've looked at the body and it's just a pile of cells uh, constantly changing, completely out of my control. Um, I mean, I can't, I can't get into a cell and tell it to divide. I can't, I can't do anything. <laughs> with the cellular makeup of my body. Uh, and when it comes to my heart level, I can, I can allow the heart to manifest and it will slowly heal itself of its problems. And I can build up the heart through the same process of imagination so that I actually have a beautiful heart, a beautiful mind. And I can do something about thinking. Right? So there's, there's some way of controlling it. Um, if you consider a driver in a car, you see, why, for those of you who have cars, those who can drive, when you're driving and you're actually, you know, in the driving, right, you're in the zone driving, you and the car are one, yeah? And there's this feeling of total control. And it's only when the wheel drops off that you realise that actually you're not in control, you freak out. So there's that sense of identifying which gives you a sense of control. So this is the problem with identity. And so here we are, constantly disidentifying with things, and in so doing, undermining the relationship that identity creates, which is wanting to control. And that wanting to control manifests in terms of uh, desire and attachment. So as soon as something is pleasant, you want to control it, you want to maintain it, you want to, you want to increase it. And as soon as something is unpleasant, you want to get rid of it. So we're in constant conflict with the way things are. Right? Now I'm talking within ourselves. I'm talking within a psychology which is the negative part of us. Right? Don't confuse this with compassion and love which is coming from a wisdom centre where you're trying to do something but from a very different angle. Okay? And it's coming out of trying to find a, uh, an honest and a skillful relationship that's what, that's what we're moving towards when we, when we develop this goodwill, this compassion and joy. And that, of course, brings a happiness which is not clinging. It's not, love doesn't cling. Huh? Love allows. See? So um, this was his sort of discovery. And it's interesting that in the, as it's put in the, in the mythology of his teaching, the first teaching was round about these four noble truths, just laying the platform that there is suffering. See? So this is, this is it, you see. There is, you know, I thought I had a pretty good grasp on death. There is death. <laughs> and it's like, 
It's like really laying the platform about, about life as unsatisfactory. You know, and that we shouldn't be seeking permanent happiness in life. The joys in life come and go. Simple as that. And then, in the second noble truth, to point to the very kernel, which is the problem, the desire, which is to do with, um, which is to do with our relationship to things, right? This English word desire is a bit, it's not quite right, because you can have a good desire, an honest desire. Uh, I'm translating the word tanga, which is often translated as thirst or craving. But it's, all it is is desire based on wrong understanding, desire based on delusive understanding. And then the, the third noble truth is a really clear declaration that there is an end to suffering. Well, you can't get clearer than that. There is an end. No Western psychotherapist has said that. Right? They, they've never, they all say you can get to a, an accommodation with life, but nobody has ever stated in the West that you can come to the end of suffering in this very life. Not that I know of, anyway. Is there one? No, I don't think there is. <laughs> so, and, the, and of course the fourth one is, you know, how to get there. Uh, the Eightfold Path. And the top of the Eightfold Path is this right understanding. And the right under view, right, right view is probably a better way of expressing it. And to begin to turn the way we, th we see things, to turn them around, constant reminder about how things arise and pass away. Constant reminder that every time suffering arises, there must be something wrong within my relationship to what's happening here. Right? There's something in me that's got it wrong. Right? And to look, to look into it and take responsibility for it. And the fact that, you know, uh, not to substantiate things, not to, keep, not to make this sense of I so strong, and you do that, of course, by bringing, by, by connecting with other people. Uh, one example is uh, the Buddha visits these uh, three monks who are liberated, completely liberated. The, he calls them the Anurudas. And um, he asks one of them, you know, how is it that you live so peacefully together? And the colonel's statement within the discourse is, well, when I get up in the morning, I say to myself, what if I do what the others do? And what if I put aside what I want to do and do what the others want to do? Now, how many of you get up in the morning and say that to yourself? <laughs> <laughs> what, if I, what if I put aside what I want to do and do what the others want to do? Now, frankly, in a community, that only, that only works if everybody says it. <laughs> I end up being, being slightly abused because everybody will do, make you do what they want to do. So, <laughs> so there has to be that reciprocity. There has to be... Right? So, um, uh, we can see now, you know, as, as we go through this, the sort of, um, just the amazing insight that the Buddha had. I mean, I couldn't have got there myself without the Buddha. I mean, I couldn't have got there without my teachers who, who told me to look this way. See? I mean, I'd still be a raving lunatic. Way back. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I would never have been able to have grasped this were it not for the direction from my teachers and they going right back to the Buddha, who made that kernel insight. So that's where he stands within uh, our particular tradition. He's, he's, he's the founder, he's actually, he's the fountain of, of all that insight that, that we have. And um, he's, the, he's, the, he's the exemplar, because he himself went through this whole process. It wasn't something that he thought up. It was something that he himself personally experienced about himself. And in the sense that he's an archetype, 
because all of us have to go through this process of renunciation. Uh, and, that, and if you look at any spiritual tradition, it doesn't matter what religion it is, uh, you'll find it's always a process of renunciation. And the renunciation, remember, isn't the denial of the world. It's not a, it's not a world ne negative thing. It's a denial of uh, this, this, this um, seeing the world as the place to become perfectly happy in. See? And what we're, aiming, what we're aiming towards is that when we are in a state of joyfulness, we can actually fully enjoy it without wanting it to be repeated, without holding on to it. And that when we're in a state of misery uh, and, and, and pain and all that, that we're able to be patient with it and just bear with it. That's where we're, that's, that's where we're going to. So uh, the Buddha, when he died, he was praised afterwards for his patience, for his, for his bearing of his illness. He had um, uh, food poisoning, had a food poisoning. And even there, you know, just finally, even there before, before he died, you know, he's able to, to encourage people, you know. All compounded things arise and pass away. Strive diligently for your liberation. He's always asked, you know, what, what will be our last words? Why me? <laughs> <laughs> it was a lovely... I saw a lovely cartoon with all these ladies around this elderly lady who was dying and she's looking at them and saying, why me? Why not one of you? <laughs> so, so, uh, so you can see that that's where it's leading us towards anyway, this sort of, that's what we mean by liberation from suffering. We don't mean liberation from the pains and the, and the, and the emotional stuff around life, we mean a liberation from it. In fact, uh, just to bring the, pro bring the uh, talk to an end, could you bring me that uh, thing, um, Marion? It's on, you know, that um, on the on the window ledge out there. That that uh, you'll see it. What, what, do you call it? <laughs> what, what, what do you call it? Picture frame. Picture frame. Oh, <laughs> picture frame. It's not a picture. Just a picture frame. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't think I'd need this, but I said I had it. <laughs> it's just that when you start talking, you never know where you're going to end up. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Mary. So this uh, is an amazing woman. I mean, she's uh, died in 1991. She was 90 years old. And here, she, she's telling us what it's like to be fully liberated. I mean, this is a very clear, straightforward statement, you know. She says, body, mind and essence are all distinct and separate realities. The body the mind, and then she's talked about essence. So just keep that word in mind. And absolutely everything is known. It's not as though she doesn't experience things as they come up. When she talks about earth, water, fire and wind, she's talking about her, her sensual experience, which is weight, uh, temperature, movement, feeling, memory, thoughts and consciousness. Huh? So they all come up. Sound, sight, smells, tastes, touches, emotions, anger, greed and delusion are all known. Now note that, anger, greed and delusion. So the enlightened person hasn't got rid of all the habitual little tendencies within the mind, right? So they're known when they come up, and I know them all as they exist in their own natural states. Okay? But no matter how much I'm exposed to them, I'm unable to detect even an instant when they have any power over my heart. So now notice that word, over my heart, right? No power of my heart. And they arise and cease, they're forever changing, but the presence that knows them never changes for an instant. 
It is forever unborn and undying, and this is the end of suffering. Presence. So she uses three words to try and point to something which is indescribable. Right? It's an essence, it's a heart, and it's a presence. See? And our job in our practice is to actually begin to recognise what that is. And we recognise it more easily by constantly making everything that we experience an object of our experience, by pointing to it. Yeah? So, uh, I can only hope my words have been of some assistance. And it has not caused even greater confusion. <laughs> <laughs> and that you will, by your own uh, deliberate and uh, devoted practice, soon liberate yourself from all suffering, sooner rather than later. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Delayed but yet sweet to the ear. <laughs> <laughs>